are you putting this? Oh, there That's it is. Okay. <sighs> Unbreakable. She's alive. <laughs> Great. Real oh, bullets. I think the three amigos might have to be on my list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we're talking about Tintin from the comic book The Adventures of Tintin by Hergé. Good pronunciation on that. I discovered in preparing for this episode that I've been mispronouncing his name forever. Herg. <laughs> I was going more with a Herge, but apparently it's Hergé. Hergé. He's uh, French, right? Yes. Yeah, and um, as a listener pointed out, my French pronunciation may leave something to be desired. <laughs> that uh, I think both of our French pronunciation <laughs> leaves something to be desired. Okay, so Tintin is a request from listener and patron Lydia. And thank you, Lydia, for your support of the show and for requesting Tintin, which is something I always wanted to read but uh, never had the time to do until today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Listener requests uh, move things up our priority list. Yes, it's amazing how that happens. Uh, so we're discussing two stories from Tintin, King King Otiker's Scepter, which is the eighth Tintin story, and was published between 1938 and 1939, and Tintin in Tibet, which was the 20th Tintin story and was published 1958 to 59, and uh, was created by an artist named George Remy, who went by the pen name Hergé. So, Todd, you said you kind of have always wanted to read Tintin. When did you first kind of become aware of Tintin? Um, it would have been around when the film came out. The Spielberg the Tintin, one? The, yeah, the Spielberg Tintin film. Uh, and I just heard that it was really good. I saw the film and was not blown away by it, but always assumed that the books would be better than the film. Uh, and w- as I got more into uh, comics and graphic novels, I thought, oh, I should go back and read some Tintin. Uh, I never had a chance until today. So here I am. Great. How about you? Uh, so in, as regular listeners will know well, uh, in grad school, I studied a lot of American comic books. And just by being deep in reading about the comic book form, you become more familiar with um, international comics, even if my main area of focus was on the American comic book industry. And so some manga got mentioned a lot and some specific manga titles. And there were two European titles that got mentioned all the time. One was Tintin and one was Asterix. And uh, I finally read uh, some Tintin a couple of years ago. I had asked my wife for Christmas to get me the first uh, collection. And there was a, a new reprint uh, happening. I can't remember which publishing company was doing it, but they were uh, redo, uh, well, just submitting them all again out there. And my wife got me the first collection, which had the first three Tintin, uh, stories, I believe. Um, and so that's when I finally had read some Tintin and I always wanted to read the rest, but I had not read any besides those three until yesterday. It seems like there's, there's a fairly decent Tintin presence online. So there's like Tintin.com. Um, there's a really good app where you can buy a bunch of Tintin, uh, comics, uh, the Tintin in the Land of the Soviets just was made available on iBooks, so it's possible to get these. 
Yeah, um, I just, uh, my library had them all, uh, all the ones that have been released. Again, these new collections that I think each volume has three Tintin stories in it. Um, and uh, I just stuck them on hold, and I was nervous that they weren't going to be <laughs> done before we had to record. But they, uh, I got an email from my library yesterday, and so I went and got them. Great. So today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. There are over 180,000 titles uh, there for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. All right. I have some trivia about Tintin and I just want to give a note. There is so much information out there about Erge and about Tintin and so much trivia. This is one of those subjects that if you're like a devoted fan of Tintin, you're going to know more about this than Todd and I. We, we do uh, a very eclectic range of topics uh, and we're informed to a degree on most of the things we talk about. But if you're a devoted Tintin fan, you're going to know all the trivia I'm about to share and more. Um, but here's some of what I was able to, to find. Um, Hergé is Belgian, uh, and Tintin first appeared in a Belgian newspaper, but it is one of the most popular European comics of, uh, the 20th century. And even till today, it's still extremely popular. Um, I know, as I said a little bit earlier, there's a French comic book called Asterix that is usually reported as the most popular European comic book, but Tintin is almost always mentioned in the same breath uh, as Asterix. Uh, Tintin stories were initially serialized in a newspaper uh, before they would then be collected into books. And this is going back to the, the 30s. The long run of Tintin, which spanned actually uh, from the late 20s all the way through the mid-1970s, meant that Hergé saw a lot of changes in the world. If you were living in Europe <laughs> in those decades, things changed considerably. Um, and that included there was a stretch of time when he was writing Tintin while Belgium was occupied by Nazi Germany. And the... Uh, the newspaper that he started Tintin with was put out of business when uh, the Germans uh, took over and out of work. He ended up doing it uh, for a child supplement for a German-controlled newspaper. And then after the war, uh, that newspaper went out of business. And then a comic book publisher approached Hergé about producing a Tintin magazine. Now, uh, when he was working for the newspapers, he did everything himself, all the art, uh, the the inking, the writing, the art, and the coloring. But when he was doing this Tintin magazine, which was essentially more like a comic book that we have today, he was a bit overwhelmed by the pace of trying to do all of that, um, especially the coloring. And so he formed Studios Hergé, uh, where other artists were brought in to help with the work. He was still the creative voice behind Tintin. He still wrote the stories. He still did a lot of the art, but he now had helpers to help with the finishing, with the inking, with the coloring. Um, Between 1950 and 86, uh, when he um, had formed it, uh, everything that was produced through the studio was attributed to Hergé, though at various points they had between 12 and 50 employees working at Studios Hergé. This was a big production. Um, the Adventures of Tintin has been translated into more se- more than 70 languages and has sold over 200 million copies worldwide. And Tintin is a massively popular piece of entertainment. But some of the stories are clearly just products of their times. And there are some elements that have not aged well. This is not uncommon for popular culture from the early 20th century uh, to be viewed through modern eyes. There's a lot of things that where you say, hmm, that's, that's a little uncomfortable today. There's an early story called Tintin in the Congo that in particular has been criticized for some racist caricatures in the drawings of the Native Africans um, and also kind of a general 
pro-colonialist theme <laughs> within the work. And Hergé himself addressed this later in his career. He said, I was fed the prejudice, prejudices of the bourgeois society that surrounded me. And he also said he portrayed these Africans according to this purely paternalistic spirit of the time, but that spirit has not carried on. Um, and in later editions, some aspects of particularly Tintin and the Congo have been changed uh, to make them a little more palatable to modern audiences. There have been a lot of adaptations of Tintin. Uh, there were two animated TV series. There was a radio drama. There was a stop motion film. Dude, that's right down your film. alley. I know. Yes. Uh, two traditionally animated films. And then in 2011, this is the one you referenced, Todd. Steven Spielberg directed a motion capture animated film. Uh, that was planned to be the first of a trilogy with Peter Jackson uh, from Lord of the Rings fame, who was going to direct the second film. But uh, the the film did not light up the box office as much as the studio was hoping. It was not a flop, but it did not uh, warrant sequels. And I haven't heard any movement on completing the planned trilogy. Too bad. Um, academic study of Tintin has been given the nickname Tintinology, and there are several academic books about Tintin uh, in Europe. Those were starting to appear in the late 80s and 90s, and I know in uh, America there are already a couple, and I think uh, two or three more. So I'm part of a comic scholar's email list, and I think there were at least two books about Hergé or Tintin that were published uh, in 2016. So it seems to be a thriving area of inquiry for academics. And just one other bit, uh, particular to one of the stories that we're doing, uh, the Dalai Lama bestowed the International Campaign for Tibet's Light of Truth Award upon the Erge Found or yeah Erge Foundation in recognition of Tintin in Tibet, which they said introduced the region to audiences across the globe. And that was um, I want to say I have to go double check. I've, I didn't get the year down in my notes, but I want to say that was in uh, like 2004 or five that that was given. That's cool. I just checked the recesses of my memory, and that was in 2006. Okay, so we've made it all this way, and we have not said what Tintin is actually about. All right, yes. <laughs> Usually we do that before the trivia. Do you want to take a stab at this? Sure. Uh, Tintin is uh, kind of an adventure series of this boy reporter slash just explorer named Tintin who goes on adventures kind of all over the world. And everywhere that he visits, there's some sort of mystery that needs to be solved or some sort of crisis that needs to be averted. And he inserts himself <laughs> into the goings on and has kind of an what what today we'd say is an Indiana Jones style adventure. Mm hmm. If that sounds interesting to you, listeners, then you can pick up Tintin in a variety of different formats uh, and places, including on Amazon. And uh, we would remind you to take advantage of all of the great deals by, uh, on Amazon by going to uh, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. And just remind you, it looks exactly like regular Amazon. It costs you nothing more, but we get a little kickback from your purchases, and uh, and that's great. So... Are we ready to jump into these full synopses? Yes, and listeners, uh, for the first time, we're splitting the synopses. Todd is going to uh, give us a quick summary of, uh, what was it, King, how do, you, King, how do we say it? King Ottaker's Scepter. Ottaker. We're going to go with Ottaker. That will be how we are pronouncing that one. Ottaker. And then, uh, I will summarize Tintin in Tibet. Okay. So how old would you say Tintin is? late teenage years early 20s somewhere in there sometimes he seems very young and sometimes he seems a tiny bit older than very young <laughs> yes i would agree with that 
like in in all cases he seems young but sometimes he seems like like 15 years old and sometimes he seems you know maybe 18 years old or something but he's a young kid so while on a while i'm just gonna say this right now this feels very disjointed and it's not it's not because my writing is poor uh it's because this is a fairly disjointed story uh i think yeah, it did uh it, it bounced around in some unexpected ways. <laughs> okay, I just checked uh the recesses of my mind called Wikipedia, and according to that, Tintin is around fourteen to nineteen years old. So if Wikipedia is accurate in this instance, we've got a five year span that Tintin could be. Okay. And I'd say that's so, the range he kind of feels like the whole way through. Yeah. So while on a walk with his dog Snowy Tintin finds an abandoned briefcase. He looks inside and finds that it belongs to a Professor Alembiche. So he returns the uh, the briefcase to the professor. He finds his address, takes it to him. And it turns out that Alembiche is a an expert in sigillography, which is the study of seals. Not the animals, but the things monarchs and dignitaries use to seal letters. So Alembiche shows Tintin his collection of rare seals, among which is the seal of Otokar N., King of Sildavia. It is a rare seal, and Alembiche is going to travel to that country, and he happens to need a secretary, someone who can hold his bags and arrange his travel uh, and such, and uh, he also keeps offering Tintin cigarettes. Tintin leaves, and uh, leaves a briefcase with the professor, and while he's on his way out, some shady-looking men take a picture of him. And then Tintin realizes that he's left his book with the professor, and he goes back to get it. But outside a door... He hears uh, some men talking about him, and he hides, uh, and then one of the men leaves, and Tintin follows him to a Sildavian restaurant called Klau, which is the name of the capital city of Sildavia. So uh, when, when Tintin goes in the restaurant, the man has disappeared. Uh, Tintin tells the owner he needs to use the restroom, but he really starts kind of sneaking around, and then he hears more people talking behind closed doors about him. Tintin goes back home. His phone rings. Someone tells him he wants to meet him. Then uh, the time for the meeting arrives. Tintin's doorbell rings. He opens the door, and a man faints into his apartment. And then a couple of international inspectors show up, and they seem to know, like, they know uh, Tintin from previous adventures. Yes, they are recurring characters, those two. Yeah. They're these uh, kind of bumbling inspectors. Yeah, but So uh, when this... Yeah, so when the man wakes up, he says he doesn't know who he is, and the inspectors take him away. So later, someone throws a rock through Tintin's window and has a note wrapped around it that says, for the last time, mind your own business. Tintin is incapable of minding his own business, and he decides to accept the professor's offer to go to Sildavia as his secretary. So then the next day, someone tries to kill Tintin with a bomb, but it blows up on the inspectors instead, but they're only comically singed. Uh, but then Tintin recognizes the shady men he was following earlier in the crowd, and they run off, and Tintin grabs a motorcycle and chases them. So Tintin crashes, but the inspectors catch up in a sweet car, a sweet pink car, and then they take him home. <laughs> and then his phone once again rings, and it's the professor, and Tintin hears a struggle on the other end of the line, so he runs to check things out, but the professor tells him everything's fine, nothing is amiss. And Tintin is confused. So the next All day, right, Tintin wait, and the professor right. board a plane... Go ahead. Uh, how many concussions do you think Tintin has had so far? Just the one from the motorcycle crash? Oh my gosh. Or 
I was starting to act cause like all, over and over. He's like standing up. Oh, I was just knocked unconscious for a minute there. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely. Uh, I don't know what uh, adult Tintin, what kind of state he is in, but he's definitely been knocked out a lot of times. If this if this one story is any indication. So. Uh, so the next day, Tintin and the professor board a plane, and they're on their way to Sildavia. And Tintin starts to notice that the professor doesn't seem like himself. Specifically, he's not smoking and offering Tintin cigarettes all the time. Uh, and so by now, Tintin is convinced that the professor is really an imposter, so he tries to pull off his beard, but it doesn't come off. And Tintin is surprised and assumes then this must be the real professor if he has a real beard. So they continue flying, uh, but then Tintin's, air- <laughs> Tintin's airplane seat falls through a trap door. Luckily, there's a parachute attached to his seat. But Tintin cannot seem to get it fastened, but no worries, he falls into a bale of hay and is unharmed. Love it. I have no idea how this how this happens. Uh, and Snowy, the dog, actually rides on the top of the parachute safely to uh, to to the to the earth. So Tintin is now in Sildavia, but he's outside of town, so he starts walking. And he goes to the police and tells them he's convinced that there is a plot against the king. Now, how Tintin has connected all of the dots uh, is uh, a little bit beyond me at this point, but <laughs> he's convinced that there's a plot against the king. So then the, but it turns out the police chief is in on the plot, so he arranges for Tintin to be captured. But Tintin escapes in a car with an opera singer, and she tries to sing to him, but he doesn't like it, and so he decides to walk again. But before he gets to the capital, he's arrested again. And then the next day, uh, the professor gains access to the treasury room uh, so that he can study the archives. So the professor is in Klau, in the capital city, and he wants to go to the archives, supposedly to study the treasure room. Tintin thinks that he's there to study the king, to steal the king's uh, scepter. So meanwhile, Tintin receives a cryptic letter telling him that the police are planning to shoot him. So he escapes again, and he continues walking uh, to Klau. And I should mention that Snowy the dog is still with him. <laughs> I don't know how uh, this dog has managed to survive all this time. This dog uh, is impressive. But they're, they're together still. So they hide, out, they hide out in the rain in a museum, and Snowy steals a giant leg bone from a giant dinosaur. Then Tintin tries to warn the king of the plot against his life, but again he is thwarted. It seems like every single person in Sildavia is in on the plot. Either that or Tintin has the world's worst luck. Uh, but Tintin escapes again. And then he's captured again, and he's thrown in jail again. Then he escapes again, and this time he charges in on the king. He punches the king's assistant, and this certainly gets uh, the monarch's attention. So now Tintin and the king rush to the treasury room, but when they get there, the king's scepter is gone. The professor and the guards are all unconscious on the floor, and uh, and 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 we're, we find out that if the king doesn't have his scepter, then he's unable to rule. It's, a, it's, it's one of the laws of Sildavia, that if the king does not have a scepter, he cannot rule. All right, we... I- I want to circle back to this political structure later. (laughs) Okay. So the scepter is gone, and if the king doesn't get it back, he can't rule. So then the international inspectors show up, and they try to help, but they're really just uh, more comic bumbling relief. Uh, but the mystery is, how could the scepter be gone? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a locked room mystery, because the, the room was locked from the outside. Nobody had left the room, but the scepter is gone. 
Uh, then Tintin realizes that the professor had used a camera with a spring attached to launch the scepter out the window over the palace walls into the forest. Hold so on. he runs out into the forest to get the scepter. And he. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say he discovers that the camera has the spring loaded when he is knocked unconscious by the spring loaded camera. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, just, just one more concussion so... for poor Tintin. Yeah, and, and I mean, all of these escape. He escapes, then he's captured, then he escapes again, then he captures, then he escapes. It happens many times. Uh, so, so Tintin runs into the forest to try to find the scepter, and he does find the scepter. But then some bad guys grab it. So then we've got the uh, the classic sort of uh, everybody's trying to grab this thing. It keeps falling, gets knocked out. Somebody else grabs it, um, and then Snowy grabs the scepter because he thinks it's a bone, and he tr- he tries to run away. Then he loses it again. Then Tintin chases the bad guy through the mountains, uh, and just before they reach the border of Sildavia. Uh, Tintin gets the scepter back. So he runs and steals a plane from the Sildavian Air Force or the uh, Bordurian Air Force. I'm not sure uh, which, it, it was <laughs> which from country's the, uh, the Air Force guys. it is. Yeah, it was from the bad guys. From the bad guy from the bad guy Air Force. He steals a plane, flies away, but his plane is shot down, so he has to walk back to Klau. Uh, when he gets back to the palace, he has lost the, snep- the scepter, but no worries. Snowy the dog has picked it up, thinking once again that it is a bone. Uh, the king is once again safe uh, on his throne with his scepter. There's a big celebration, and Tintin is named a Knight of the Order of the Golden Pelican. Uh, a few days later, in his discussion with the investigators, Tintin learns that the professor had an evil twin who was not a smoker, and this was the imposter. Uh, Tintin gets on a seaplane with the inspectors and they forget they are on a seaplane and they walk into the sea. It's all very silly. The end. You know, it, it was kind of uh, funny to look back at a day when the smoking was not the automatic signal for villainy that it is today in all cartoons. <laughs> now, listeners, we're going to jump ahead to Tintin in Tibet. Tintin and his friends, Captain Haddock and Professor Calculus, who are two recurring characters uh, that would show up in many of the Tintin adventures, they are on vacation in the French Alps. Haddock says mountains are dangerous, which begs the question why he came to the French Alps. But he shows Tintin a newspaper article about a plane crash in Tibet as evidence. Tintin has a dream about his friend Chang. This is from an early adventure in China. He met a boy named Chang. They became good friends. Seems like they're pen pals still. But Tintin has a dream of Chang lying hurt and covered in snow. Soon, he gets a letter from Chang. And he's like, wow, this is too much of a coincidence. I just had this dream. And now this letter from Chang uh, is arriving. And Chang is saying that he's going to be traveling to London from Hong Kong, and he hopes to be able to see Tintin uh, sometime when he's in Europe. So Tintin realizes from Chang's travel plans that were described in the letter that Chang may have been on the plane that crashed in Tibet. Captain Haddock is skeptical that Chang could possibly be alive after that crash that was described in the newspaper. The newspaper said there was no survivors. Um, But nonetheless, Tintin insists, and Haddock and Tintin travel to Tibet together. There, they hire a Sherpa named Tharkay to take them to the crash site of the airplane. They have porters with them who are helping to carry supplies, but when they see Yeti footprints in the snow, the porters leave. That is right, listeners. We have a Yeti story, and I love a Yeti story. So, Tintin and Captain Haddock... Um, I love uh, me some Yeti. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, Tintin, Captain Haddock, and Tharkay, though, they those three are brave, and they carry on despite these overlarge footprints in the snow. 
they reach the crash site and Tintin gets separated from the others because he sees the cave and he goes to look inside of it. And uh, the others don't quite see that. Um, and inside of the cave, he sees the name Chang scratched onto a rock. Uh, while he is in the cave, though, a blizzard hits. It's a full whiteout. Um, so the others don't know where Tintin is. They go and stay inside of the crashed airplane hull uh, while Tintin is in the cave. Tintin, though, sticks his head out and he sees a figure in the snow and he thinks it must be Captain Haddock and he tries to follow it, but he falls into a crevasse. After the blizzard dies down, uh, Tintin works his way out of the crevasse and he meets up with Haddock and Tharke again. Uh, Haddock and Tharke want to give up. Uh, even though Chang survived long enough to go carve his name in the cave, they say there's just no way he could still be alive without protection from the elements and food. It's uh, been quite a lot of time since uh, the plane crashed at this point. Uh, so Tharke and Haddock are about to leave, and th- then Tintin sees a yellow scarf way up high on the mountain. And Tharke says, no, you have to have expert climbing gear to even be able to reach where that uh, scarf is, if that even is Chang's. There's no way we can get up there. Um, Tintin wants to go and investigate. Uh, Tharke, though, just uh, insists this is pointless. And Haddock is going to go with Tharke uh, when Tintin says, you know what, Haddock, I've got this flask of brandy left in the back of my pouch. Could you help me to get that out? And Haddock had run out of his own alcohol a couple days ago. uh, And he discovers his bravery when he hears that Tintin still has a little bit of brandy. Uh, but while they are climbing to where the scarf is, uh, they get stuck in a very dangerous situation. And just when things are looking especially grim for Haddock and Tintin, Tharke returns and saves them. The three of them then see a Buddhist monastery down, uh, in the valley. And they're about to head down to it when an avalanche hits them. Now we cut to the monastery and there's a blind monk who has a vision of this group of men and a dog. That's right. I forgot to mention him until this point, but Tintin's dog Snowy has been with him on this entire adventure and survived all of it. Uh, So this monk has this vision of three men and a dog. Uh, But after the avalanche, Tintin and uh, Haddock and Tharke, they're kind of incapacitated, but Snowy runs down to the monastery and the other monks recognize this dog uh, as the dog that had been described in the vision. So they set out to go help the men that they believe must be in danger. Now the three men all wake up in the monastery and the grand abbot, who is the spiritual leader of the monastery, he says, there's no way Chang could be alive. He like, applauds them for their bravery and their loyalty to their friend. But he says, I'm sorry, um, Chang must be dead. And he advises them to return home as they're all about to return home. They're walking through the monastery and this blind monk has another vision. And he mentions seeing uh, Chang essentially, uh, Tintin recognizes that's Chang that's being described uh, in a cave. Uh, and he even says a specific part of the mountains where they could go to find this cave. And Tintin and Haddock, of course, decide they're not going back as they'd been advised, but they're going to go to this cave. And I should note that all of these journeys are taking days or weeks. <laughs> like uh, there'll be a text box that just says three days later, uh, showing them still walking <laughs> through the mountains. Um Tintin, though, must be a young man because he never shaves, from what I can see, and never develops any five o'clock shadow. Uh, As uh, they have now reached the point in the mountain that the monk had described, but they see a hulking figure moving around the mountainside. Tintin sees the cave that was described in the vision, and he goes to investigate it, and he finds Chang alive, but sick and feverish inside of this cave. And then the Yeti comes in through the mouth of the cave, but Tintin uses the flashbulb of his camera to scare the Yeti away. 
Haddock and Tintin carry Chang back to the monastery, and Chang explains that after the plane crash, he crawled to the cave where they had seen his name carved, but he would have died if the Yeti had not found him. The Yeti brought him food from the plane, uh, and then the Yeti kept bringing him small animals to eat, and then the Yeti carried him to this other cave and made him a bed of tree boughs to sleep on. When they near the monastery, the Grand Abbot meets them and gives Tintin a silk scarf to honor the loyalty and bravery he has shown for his friend Chang. As Chang, Tintin, and Haddock leave Tibet, Chang says he hopes nobody ever finds the Yeti because they treat it like an animal, and Chang wonders if the Yeti didn't have a human soul. The final panel shows the Yeti mournfully watching his friend Chang ride away. The Yet. Well done. Thank you. You too. Uh, I think yours was a little more uh, random in some of the uh, threads that occurred in the plot. This one was, you know, years <laughs> later and had a little more focus to it. I think maybe Hergé kind of found his storytelling legs as as time went on. Maybe? I feel like the Tibet story is a little bit more uh, coherent as a, as a story. It kind of holds together a little bit better, but, uh, but they're both super fun. Yeah, I think they're both fun, and they both, within that kind of adventure swashbuckling storytelling style, I think there's some interesting ideas and themes that are being explored. Very different ones in the two stories. And I think those are successful in both, even if I agree with you that the uh, King Otakar's Scepter story feels um, a little more random in terms of how the plot itself occurs. So let's talk about Tintin the character. Uh, What do you like about about this character. So he's clearly brave. He's clearly adventurous. Um, this is the mold of the kind of characters that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were looking back on from their childhood when they created Indiana Jones. And absolutely everything from the tone of these stories to the way Tintin acts to um, this strange mix of knowledge and bravery and just random luck that allows him to come out on top in these adventures. All of those are what we see in Indiana Jones films. And absolutely they were doing a callback to this kind of story. And clearly Spielberg had a love for Tintin because he, uh, you know, went on and directed a Tintin film in 2011. But uh, even within all those things that I like, there still seems to be kind of a, I don't know if it's um, a lack of specificity to the character, but there's kind of an everyman quality. I I think you can say those at the same time Uh, that allows, I think readers to be able to put themselves into the adventure through Tintin because there's enough of a blank slate aspect, even as we can identify some of those character traits that he does have. I like how Tintin is, it deals with some themes. It's, this isn't breaking bad. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly the tone is very light. Uh, there's this kind of pluckiness and optimism about Tintin. Uh, I wonder where his parents are, uh, much of the time, (laughs) but it's also like, who cares, you know, (laughs) who cares where his parents are? Uh, he's a kid. He lives alone in this apartment with his dog and he's just up for adventure, right? He's game for adventure all the time. Uh, and and he's just, like, genuinely excited about going out and and having adventures. And there's something, I don't know, there's, there's something really appealing in that. Uh, not everything has to be dark. And this well, is even, not dark. 
Yeah, even uh, as you're saying, it's not dark. It's also not a character study of Tintin. So something like Breaking Bad is dark, but it's also this very in-depth character study of uh, the the fall of a moral man into immorality. This is not a character study. These are great stories. I think Tintin is a great character within those stories. But as far as what makes Tintin Tintin, there's less to this character than some of the others that we've looked at. I mean, I, I, we could use some adjectives to describe him so we've said like plucky adventurous lucky uh brave uh he's a loyal friend i mean there are characteristics you could you could you could line up a bunch of characteristics and say this is this is who tintin is we have a a pretty good idea of who he is there doesn't seem to be much dynamism in his character he doesn't change uh over the course of these adventures it's not like Oh, now Tintin has learned a lesson, and he's he's a much better person. Uh, it really is about throwing this character that we know and love into a situation and see how he gets out of it, and then next week we can reset and throw him into a different adventure and see how he uses the same set of skills that he has in every uh, in every episode uh, to get himself out of uh, of another sticky situation. Right, and I think there's nothing wrong with that kind of episodic storytelling. It certainly still has a place in American television. It still has a place uh, in you know superhero stories. Uh, and there's something that can be comforting about returning to these characters we know and love. And the adventure is in seeing how, uh, like you said, they come out on top of these crazy adventures, not necessarily how they change or evolve. So listener Lydia, who submitted uh, the request that we talk about Tintin, she had initially given us several uh, stories to look at, and she wanted us to talk about the Tintin and Captain Haddock relationship. Um, just because of our own experience and what we've learned in doing this podcast, we said we probably could only do two stories. And she wanted these two and said one without Captain Haddock and one with him. And you can kind of compare and contrast uh, the differences. So I think one thing that does change in Tintin isn't necessarily the character himself, but some of the supporting cast that become more regular. Um, even the opera singer that was in... Uh, King Ottokar's uh, scepter. The um, I think she appears in almost every Tintin adventure, or at least her singing does. So in Tintin in Tibet, the porters who are carrying up the supplies one night, they're listening to the radio, and Captain Haddock hears the opera singer and just has a meltdown because this, uh, he's like, "This opera singer follows me everywhere. I can't, I can't get away from her." And he goes and makes him turn off the radio. Uh, so there is a supporting cast that kind of grows and develops, and those uh, interpersonal relationships, I think, are something that may evolve more again than what we've already said about Tintin himself. The, it's funny that you mentioned the the opera singer. Uh, the so I read one of these in an old. Uh, like an old trade that I got at the library. And the other one I couldn't get at my library, so I got the digital version on the Tintin app on the iPad. And at the very end, there's a section that's called... What is it called? Something about uh, young readers. And there's like a trivia. Uh, there's a trivia section at the end. It says uh, the real-life inspiration behind Tintin's adventures. And then it goes through and gives a bunch of information about Hergé and about Sildavia and what and how scholars have tried to identify where what he was actually looking at. They have uh, old pictures of 15th century Mongolian uh, tapestries that he was maybe looking at when he made his uh, a, a replica of that in in the book, um, and and then like a, a photograph of a little town in Bosnia that looks just like the, the picture of the, of the town in Sildavia. Uh, but it, it talks about how, uh, Hergé apparently hated 
music and uh <laughs> like especially opera and so he uh he wrote that into his story oh okay i did not know that and there's actually uh there's a there's a picture of a real uh bianca what's what is this uh aino akte who was a finnish opera singer and uh and they think that she was maybe the real the real bianca castafiore oh <laughs> it's awesome i love this stuff yeah um should we talk a little bit about some of the uh i mean king Otakar's scepter like just as far as what the story is about yes there's all these absurd plot twists and this massive conspiracy that like you said it seems like everyone uh in the kingdom is involved in and there's this really odd political structure where the possession of the scepter is required for the king to remain a ruler and by stealing the scepter they're prepared uh to take over like this, this enemy country is about to take march in as soon as the king's no longer the king and try and fill in the power vacuum uh, I'm not sure if the whole military of the country was going to, you know, just roll over once there wasn't a king because he didn't have the scepter or what. Um, so, there, like, there's a silliness <laughs> to to that plot, but he's writing this in 1938 and 39 in Europe. <laughs> and I think there's some bold yeah. uh, criticism that's happening about the influence of foreign powers and about the fear of invasion and about uh, the... Uh, you know, the villains of this piece being, you know, under the sway of foreign powers and this lack of loyalty to your own country. Like, there, I think there's a lot for that moment in time that is present in Tintin that, like, a reader today is maybe going to miss out on. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in that in that same section of trivia, it says, When King Ottokar's Scepter was first published, World War II was just beginning. By the end of May 1940, Belgium was occupied by Germany. Hergé was forced to make a decision. If he wanted to continue publishing Tintin stories, he had to steer clear of political storylines. This was the beginning of a period during which strong things of fantasy and exotic adventure emerged in Hergé's Tintin adventures. Uh, and so this may have been him kind of at the very... At the very end, saying, oh, I'm gonna, you know, this may have been his last, like, his swan song of, of political stories. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear uh, what Lydia and other Tintin fans have to say. Uh, but it seems like maybe he took a break for a while from really political stuff. And, and maybe part of the reason why he chose the country of Sildavia and, and used a bunch of different elements from a bunch of different countries was so that it, it felt less grounded in the real world. And maybe that was a little bit of protection for him. Yeah, I I think even um, some of the you know crazier plot twists and also this weird political system that's in place all might have been um, you know trappings that made it seem sillier. Even as when you look at it, you can see he's talking about Europe. <laughs> you know, the Europe that's happening around him right then. It's it's interesting to think one one thing that I think can be really helpful when you're looking at a story and trying to figure out kind of what's going on is to is to ask that question what is this story really about and and for me there's maybe two answers to that question one it's a story about a boy who kind of stumbles onto a mystery and then just won't let go until he's done what he feels like is the right thing uh and then on the other hand it's a story about uh, about a plot to take over a country and and just kind of how uh, how fragile uh, power is 
And and we can kind of laugh at like, well, you take a scepter and all of a sudden your country's gone. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> um, it, it, it may not have seemed so uh, odd a few years later when we just saw country after country fall in Europe. So maybe he was really onto something. So I think we should also talk a little bit about what some of the themes are in Tintin in Tibet, um, which strangely dealing with real world Tibet, I'd say it's less overtly political <laughs> than the King Adhikar's, uh scepter. One of the major <laughs> themes that I think is present in this one is this idea of just undying loyalty and um, this devotion to a friendship and that that should be a great motivator for your actions. Um, and that's clearly what drives Tintin, but it also is a motivator for Captain Haddock and for Tharkay at different points in the story as well. Uh, so one thing that, uh, the, uh, a big difference that I noticed between the King Arakar Scepter and Tintin in Tibet is that in Tintin and Tibet, uh, Snowy actually talks. I mean, he talks to himself, but uh, but that's kind of fun. Uh, and I was I was noticing. Um, no, he did do that once. Did he? Yeah, in uh, King Adhikar's scepter, he did it fairly early on, and it was in such a way that I was like, "Is this is Tintin supposed to hear that, or is that just for the audience?" I couldn't remember um, that aspect from the earlier Tintins I read a couple years ago. Huh. And I, I was briefly like, is this like a Garfield and John where sometimes it's going to seem like he can hear him and sometimes he's not. <laughs> but it, it uh, pretty clearly is that Snowy thinks to okay. the audience not to Tintin in any way. So uh, I think that there's a really cool kind of parallel between Tintin and Snowy uh, in that Snowy's always interested in, in a bone, right? And, uh, and there's this idea of a, like a dog on a bone that just won't let go. Uh, and that's how Tintin is with mystery and adventure. Like once he sinks his teeth into uh, into an adventure or a mystery, uh, he won't let go until it plays itself all the way out until until the thing has been resolved. Uh, and so I think I think maybe Snowy isn't an accident or only uh, comic relief, but I think he also kind of serves as a mirror of of Tintin in a way. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And Snowy also has the same kind of loyalty where he's willing to forego a bone to help Tintin huh, at certain points, uh, even though it is a distraction to him. Uh, loyalty to, to Tintin you know, drives him to get all the way down to the monastery uh, in Tintin in Tibet. Uh, and, you know, it <laughs> it somehow keeps him at his side as they're hiking through these mountains and uh, enduring avalanches and all these other things, just as it kept him at his side after you know, falling out of planes and being arrested multiple times and all the craziness that happened in King Otakar's scepter. Snowy was always there with Tintin. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you make of Haddock? So he's simultaneously comic relief. Um, so he, he's kind of this angry sailor that's always muttering under his breath and kind of gets the rock rock murmur murmur uh, sounds and has a couple catchphrases that get repeated. Um, that's, you know, in a style that's not uncommon for side characters in comic books or cartoons in any way. But at the same time, he also uh, introduces, I think, a couple elements that Tintin might have needed. He introduces uh, this adult presence that some of these adventures might call for when Tintin's only, you know, sometimes seems to be only 14 years old. Uh, but he also uh, um, provides the sounding board. So I think there's some, some plot reasons why Cap- having Captain Haddock there is useful for a writer, 
but he is like there seems to be genuine genuine friendship uh, between Haddock and Tintin, and uh, even though he's the older one of the pair, he is willing to follow Tintin. Uh, you know, he's not just going to assert, you know, I'm the grown up or anything like that. I've been uh, I've been watching over the past couple of days a few episodes of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix, and uh, I'm I am uh, really what's the word that I'm looking for? <laughs> I'm surprised at how many parallels there are between <laughs> between Tintin and Kimmy Schmidt, uh, but uh, but part part of it is this um, this idea that. Well, first of all, it's called Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It's a story of this this girl who's living in New York, and she just has this unbreakable will and spirit, and uh, and she's also very plucky and adventurous, uh, like Tintin is. Um, and she also is surrounded by this cast of characters who sometimes they they don't always get along, but they're always there for each other. And I think we get a lot of that in, in this as well, where Haddock is really mad, and he'll kind of curse, and then he'll uh, get knocked upside the head by running into something, and it's kind of silly. Uh, and then he'll say, I'm out of here, Tintin. You're on your own. And then Tintin will say, okay, well, I am on my own, because I'm not going to let go of this thing. I'm not going to abandon my friend. And then, sure enough, Haddock comes back. Uh, Snowy's always there. Uh, the, the Sherpa guy comes back. It's like... Uh, the the gravity of of their friendship is powerful enough to overcome their differences like time and time and time and time again yeah and there's a definitely a nobility uh in what he's willing to do for tintin in this uh he doesn't believe chang is alive uh but he's risking his life over and over uh to help tintin on what he sees as a fool's errand so <laughs> I just uh, looked up Captain Haddock in uh, on Wikipedia, and I'm going to read this directly from the Wikipedia page about the, the transformation that Haddock undergoes. So we're seeing him kind of later in uh, the Tintin and Haddock relationship. So it says, Haddock is initially depicted as a weak and alcoholic character under the control of his treacherous first mate, Alan, who keeps him drunk and runs the freighter. He regains his command and his dignity, even rising to president <laughs> of the Society of Sober Sailors, but never gives up his love of rum and whiskey. I just love that he's the president of Sober Sailors, but still <laughs> likes to drink. Uh, going on a little bit, in The Adventure of the Secret, uh, Secret of the Unicorn, he and Tintin travel to find a pirate's treasure captured by his ancestor. Let's see, jumping ahead a little. With newfound wealth and regaining his ancestral home, Marlin Spike Hall, Captain Haddock becomes a socialite, riding a horse, wearing a monocle, and sitting in a theater box seat. <laughs> he evolves to become genuinely heroic. <laughs> volunteering to sacrifice his life to save Tintin's own in the pivotal Tintin in Tibet. In later volumes, he is clearly retired, I'm assuming, from sea life. Uh, through it all, cap- the captain's coarse humanity and sarcasm act as a counterpoint to Tintin's often implausible heroism. And I would also add like an in, uh, a, a counterpoint to Tintin's um, just kind of uh, hopeful optimism. Um, Captain Haddock, like I said, he's the, he's the grumbly one of the pair, and it provides this um, this nice uh, contrast in how two different people can have different views, but you know, work together and uh, have these great adventures and, and need each other and be better because of their own interactions with each other. 
And that they can see the world in completely different ways and that one person's point of view is not a threat to the other person's point of view, right? Like Mm -hmm. one is not an existential threat for the other, uh, but they, both of their lives are better because they are there. Yeah. Uh, And um, I think Tintin has this at times maybe overwhelming idealism, at least in these two volumes. Uh, I, I, we used, um, optimism before, but I think there's also this kind of idealism and this, uh, hopefulness that permeates his character and the haddock that we saw in Tintin in Tibet is quite the opposite, but, uh, being the two sides of, uh, you know, the, the opposite sides of a coin, they still seem to be one coin and, you know, create this duo that is healthier, um, and, and safer, uh, because they have these differing points of view, uh, to kind of counterbalance each other. Yeah. I like that. Uh, so what do you make of the, the fantasy element in here, uh, with the, like the dream, uh, and seeing Chang, uh, does that work for you? Uh, it kind of stuck out, but at the same time, I didn't mind it particularly because we got a Yeti. Um, once there's a Yeti in there, I will approve of anything that it took <laughs> to get us to a Yeti. <laughs> this Yeti story made me think a lot of our Halloween special from last year. And, uh, I was really, uh, kind of traumatized by my own Yeti story that I made, <laughs> that I made up, that I sort of made up. And, uh, I was really, I was kind of worried about Tintin for a while there, but I'm glad that he, he found the nice Yeti and not the mean Yeti that, uh, that killed the people on the, in the pass. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the Yeti real quick, not just because of our undying love of Yetis, but because I started to feel really sad for this Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like that, the last panel of this book is kind of heartbreaking of this Yeti that has nursed Chang as best as it's able, uh, you know, not back to health, but kept him alive. And Chang's friends come and he leaves and the Yeti is looking sadly over this rock (laughs) As as Chang is leaving forever, I this this uh, Yeti needs to hook up with uh, Abominable Charles Christopher. I think <laughs> they could. True. I think they they could really have something going on there. Yeah, uh, previous episode listeners, we talked about there's a, an there's a shipping. Comic. Somebody needs called, to write that fanfic called Abominable Charles Christopher, and you can go back and listen to that episode for another take on uh, the kind of Bigfoot uh, mythology. But uh, yeah, there's the kind of a soulfulness to this Yeti that is really only seen clearly on like three or four pages of uh, of the comic. Does that sound right to you, Todd? Yeah, it's uh, for the most of the comic, we're, we're led to believe that he is just a terrible, abominable snowman, as we, you know, we might expect. And, uh, and everybody's terrified of it, and it's, it, it, the Yeti steals uh, Haddock's whiskey and uh, has been eating uh, goats and yaks and stuff. Uh, and then it, we have this kind of amazing turn at the end where we realize that uh, the monster is really not a monster uh, and that maybe it even has a soul. Um, I, it, it really that uh, you're absolutely right. That last page is is really kind of touching <laughs> uh, to see this sad kind of lonely Yeti uh, watching everybody leave. And I think uh, maybe just since we're zeroing in on that panel, it might be worth mentioning uh, Hergé's artistic style, which um, I'd say is very clean. 
Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of details in the background. Uh, but it, it is, doesn't have like the complex shading or, um, uh, or even like grading. I mean, some of this is for the production when it was being done. There's you know, no gradient to coloring. There's very little shading, but there's really good, um, details in the backgrounds of panels and going from one panel to the next, when you know they couldn't have just been duplicating this the way, you know, today artists made in Photoshop say, I'm going to have, you know, five panels in a row with the exact same background. And I will just copy and paste those in Photoshop and, uh, you know, redraw the figures in front. Yeah. Uh, like there's a consistency to the background and there's also really fantastic perspective. Like just flipping through some of these panels, it'll like rotate the, the camera angle, if you will, uh, of like a city street as like four panels of them walking down the street are happening. And one of them will be at the side of their face. One will be behind them. The other one will be on the other side of their faces. And the last one might be in front of them. And you get fantastic perspective and new uh, insights into the setting in every single one of those shots. And the level of detail is impressive. It's uh, it seems so, so simple. Uh, And you, you just don't realize the, the technical skill that goes into creating something like this. Uh, there's a great in the, in those extra supplementary materials on the, in the digital comic that I read, there's a half finished, uh, panel of it's Tintin walking into the throne room when he's about to be, uh, awarded the golden Pelican order of the golden Pelican. And, it's a, it's, it's kind of a off like oblique perspective. Um, there's all this amazing detail. It's all this beautiful pencil work kind of reminds me of, um, of the pencil work in hero bear. And then half of it is inked and half of it isn't. And Hergé realized halfway through inking it that he wanted a different perspective. And so he scrapped that and he did, a, a, a new drawing, in which we see that same scene, but from from Tintin's back, so walking straight towards the king sitting on the throne. Uh, but but he apparently kept the the draft around, and it's this awesome kind of look at this halfway done. So half of it's done in pencil, half of it's done in ink, and you just see the incredible amount of detail and and thought that goes into planning something like that and then executing it. And that's one picture in a, you know, and this just goes on the, the skill that's required to do that consistently well over and over and over and over again, over the course of decades is it's just astounding to me. So I wanted, I want to ask you about, um, so Hergé, the, his company received an award from Tibet for this comic. And, I think that's interesting. Uh, it's not. It's not like a a treatise on the people of Tibet, and it's not a documentary film. Um, it's a silly little comic about uh, a couple of you know Europeans who show up and then they go looking for the yeti. I mean, it's, it, they meet monks. It all feels so stereotypical. And it's not a, there's nothing really deep about it, but I'm just amazed that the Dalai Lama sees, sees something like this and says, you know what? That's awesome because it brings attention to us and our culture and we're going to reward that. 
even though I'm sure that the Dalai Lama could also look at it and say, oh, please, everybody thinks that the Yeti is here and that it's just a bunch of like kind of crazy monks floating in the sky having weird prophecies and stuff. Like, why can't they take us seriously? And instead, he takes, he, he says, you know what? It's awesome that somebody cares about enough about us to write this cool story and we're going to recognize that, that this cool thing happened. And I like that. Yeah, and um, I mean, I haven't read all of the Tintin stories, but the ones I have read, this one does, uh, you know, is a little different because there's no, um, I guess, human antagonist, I would say. Like, it's just uh, a man versus nature story, which allows, uh, you know, there's not a conspiracy happening in Tibet. (laughs) You know, there's not disloyal Tibetans uh, or anything like that happening. This is just... It's a hard area uh, for Tintin and Haddock to navigate, but they've got a quest that they're on, and it's a noble quest born of, uh, you know, loyalty, not greed, born of friendship, not, uh, you know, anger or anything like that. And so there is kind of um, an innocence that's on display for Tibet that we didn't have in the other one that we read or the other ones that I have read. Well, the other, I don't, I, I can't. I can't remember the geography of this thing well enough, but the when they initially start, there are a bunch of people who don't want to go up, and they say, "No, everybody's dead," and uh, and it's it, Tintin who says, "Well, then I'll go alone," and then Haddock says, "No, you're not going alone," and then the Sherpa says, "No, I'm not going to let you guys go alone either," and then he goes up, and so it's not like they're. Uh, the the Tibetans are all painted as these like perfect angels. They they're you know they're unwilling to go up and do this, and they only do it in the end because Tintin is going to kill himself if they don't help. Uh, but still, uh, I mean, I love everything that you've said about this kind of innocence and nobility uh, in the story itself uh, is great. All right, uh, final thought that I had that I wanted to ask about is what genre would you put Tintin into? Hmm. We'd call it something like adventure. I mean, wouldn't you call it like... I mean, you, there's... A, there's. I, I think in some of this, there's a tendency to probably call it fantasy adventure. Uh, I think Tintin in, a, in, in Tibet we could call something like that. Uh, Autocar's scepter would be more straight up adventure. I don't know. Right. What, what, what are, are, are you thinking of something more specific than that? No, I just think it has so many, uh, elements. It's hard to actually pin it down. I think you could do romantic adventure maybe, uh, which is kind of a broad enough, adve- uh, umbrella that you fit some other genres in there. So, uh, within, like you said, in Tibet, there's some fantasy elements of like this kind of uh, not just like with the monk who has visions, but even like the dream that inspires Tintin to begin it is definitely an element of, I don't know if you'd call it magical mm-hmm. realism or just, you know, magic is there. Um, but in the scepter story, you have politics, you have war, you have mystery, you have a locked room mystery happening. Uh, so there's, you know, quite, a, and then you also get broad slapstick comedy uh, from uh, the, um, is it Thompson and, Thompson, is that their names in, in English? I, I can't. I think it's uh, Thompson know, and Thompson. Right. And then yeah, uh, even yeah. Captain Haddock adds, uh, you know, so, some comedy uh, as well. So I think it's fascinating that it's hard to give a specific label of genre because Hergé was really toying with 
a lot of uh, fun, you know, whatever whatever seemed to be fun to him, I think, <laughs> kind of ended up in the stories. And, and not necessarily fun, like the pol- politics of uh, King Adhikar's scepter is not, you know, fun. It's it's dealing with something really serious that he was watching happening in, you know, in or, or uh, predicting to be happening very soon uh, in Europe. And so it's uh, a really, I think, unique blend for how long it went and how many changes happened in the world. Uh, and the way that Hergé was able to blend multiple genres, but also multiple themes uh, into the various stories. I think Tintin is, uh, I mean, not necessarily unique. We have other long-running pieces of popular culture, but I think it's special uh, because of that. It's almost like what uh, Marvel is doing with um, with their films, in that there's a core uh, kind of tone. There's a core cast of characters but increasingly as they're going on they're getting they're gaining more confidence in in that that core then they're able to explore other themes so you can have a political thriller or you can have a heist film uh and you can take take this tone and a style and a and a uh, like a heart like a core and you can do different things with it, and it always still feels like a Marvel movie. A Marvel movie always still feels like a Marvel movie in a way that a Tintin story always feels like a Tintin story, whether they're in the Congo or in Egypt or in Tibet, and whether it's a political story or more of a fantastical kind of Yeti story, uh, it still feels like Tintin, in part because because Tintin himself, I think, is a great character. <laughs> he's He's really well... Uh, well crafted so that he he fits in all of these different areas um and then and then Hergé is able to just play uh, with the genre kind of as as he wants without losing that that core of the story so that's a great point i like that all right i think on that note listeners we're going to wrap up this episode thank you for joining us and please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in itunes and please leave us a review that really helps us out and right now i would just like to say if your name is any form of Nick, so a Nicole or a Nicholas or a Nikki, uh, any, anything along those lines, I'm personally inviting you to go leave us a review. Uh, in the future, we may call out some other names and say that we're personally inviting you to go leave us a review on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, if you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched out up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes or so are a bit meandering in terms of content and uh just the way the discussion goes. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you might want to go back and give episode number 91 a listen when we talked about the abominable Charles Christopher or episode number 79 when we talked about the comic book series called Bone. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com and there you can also find a list of all of our previous shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We appreciate all the feedback that we, we receive. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there, and we, we, we receive great feedback from listeners, and we appreciate all of that. If you would like to support the show financially, you can do that in a couple different ways. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or just going directly to Patreon 
dot com slash protagonist all supporters on patreon receive access to our special quick cast where we do shorter episodes talking about recent um things in the media either trailers or movies that we've seen you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash amazon to make all of your amazon purchases just a reminder it looks exactly like regular amazon and costs you nothing more but we get a small kickback from amazon for every purchase you make when you go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so uh, we discussed uh, pronunciation, and then... Right. So, okay, say. I'm ready. Tintin is a request from... Wait, are you ready? Ready for what? <laughs> you just said I'm ready like three times and kept <laughs> pausing before you. <laughs> you said I'm ready. Wait, where? Okay, I'm ready. Uh, wait, hold on. Uh, I'm ready. And then you went, and then I wanted to pause you. I'm explaining the joke. It's bad. We're done. Okay. Are you ready? <clears throat> I'm good. Yes. <laughs>